listeners, and welcome back to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. I'm Wayne, joined by my awesome co-host, Ivy. Today, we are fortunate to be sitting down with the incredible Kendra Clark, with an E, Vice President of Data Science and Product Development at Sparks and Honey. That's right. She's a technologist who uses data to quantify culture and create transformation strategies that lead to building better companies and better futures. Today, she chats with us about the latest data, research, and emerging practices that help bridge the gaps between tech, diversity, and inclusion. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Kendra, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Yes. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We do like to kick things off uh, with a little icebreaker. Mm -hmm. So we know that over here at Sparks and Honey, you host a daily culture briefing, um, which for those of you listening is a live discussion on the trends bubbling up in our culture over the last few days. So would you be able to share what a couple of those trends are? Definitely. Um, So really in the health space, uh, one of my favorite things we've been talking a lot about lately is called bottomless wellness which is really this idea that like not just have we figured out how to eat right, we've figured out how to eat right on top of eating right on top of eating right. And like we have built this idea of ourselves as works in progress to the point that there is no finish line at this point, And thus wellness has become bottomless. Um, so we talk a lot about that actually and and how how that lives in tension with indulgence, um, how that lives in tension with living a normal life um, when you don't have all day, every day to meal prep, your three meals a day, um, and and how this lives for brands that are kind of both on the indulgence side and then also perhaps in the health and wellness space a little bit more readily. Hmm. Um, so that's probably one of my favorites right now. Yeah, I like that. Bottomless wellness. Bottomless, Bottomless wellness. wellness. That's very catchy too. And, and speaking on self-care and wellness, uh, this is Healthy Perspectives, and the folks love their health care talk. So yeah. we do want to know, uh, do you believe that technology is changing how we approach uh, the human experience when it comes to healthcare? Yeah, definitely. definitely. I mean, I think that technology is wildly changing it, um, whether it's, you know, so we we had a kind of a summit here at the office last week around precision healthcare. Hmm. Um, that was really interesting. And so, I mean, that is very tangibly a way that... Uh, that health is health and wellness is changing because of technology, because it is so inexpensive to to run your DNA um, and to you know to take other measures. Like we are now tailoring specific health care programs to individuals um, because of that, uh, which is awesome on the one hand, but also wild problematic on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, as a data scientist, there is also the other end of it that you can't forget, which is that, uh, so with data, basically everything you're gonna build is based on a couple of things, one of which is a corpus. A corpus is basically known entities that you've been collecting for some period of time. Um, and you want a corpus that is big. You want it to be well well represented of you know various populations. Mm. Um, typically, our corpuses for things like precision medicine are dominated by white folks. The funding for a lot of the research has come from countries that are just richer, which are predominantly white. Um, the people who are more likely to have access to you know to these kinds of studies and to these kinds of works, um, and also quite honestly to be more receptive to the idea of being involved in some sort of research whatsoever, uh, are typically white. Um, 
And so you wind up with these corpuses that, and then these precision medicine programs that maybe work better for white folks than for anybody else. And like, we're working on addressing it, but that's a very real way that like, not only is technology affording us some incredible, incredible things that will potentially affect all of our lives in really positive ways. It's a way that we have to be super, super, super careful because everything that we're producing is based on the data that we're collecting at the outset. And are you, are you witnessing any trends, uh, we know you specialize in, in finding that link, the gap between technology and uh, diversity and inclusion. Are you witnessing any trends when it comes to that? Yeah. Are I organizations mean, approaching yeah. it with more? Yeah. A lot of organizations are, are understandably addressing this right now yeah. mm-hmm. um, and, and are doing work and have been doing work in order to do it. Um, but also there are some major hurdles um, as well. Like we've got huge issues around trust and any sort of data right now. Um, which again, completely understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically live in an environment where we have to assume that any data that we have can and probably will be compromised. Um, at this point, like you just assume that your credit card's going to get compromised every couple of years, maybe, and you're going to have to cancel the card. And mm-hmm. like me, it's every couple of months. Right. Yeah, I haven't exactly. lost my cards, but somehow, <laughs> but somehow yeah. somebody yeah. got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, exactly. We just have to assume that certain things are going to be compromised. And what happens when, you know, the promise of what's happening in Estonia, um, which is really interesting, actually, um, to go into some deep wonk stuff. Uh, So in Estonia, the government undertook this program to basically uh, create kind of citizen data profiles and like connect them and allegedly secure them. Um, It was basically a matter of time before that was compromised, Um, which is uh, frustrating because on the one hand, like they are literally the most advanced country in the world right now at this specific thing, which is kind of creating these, you know, citizen data profiles, repositories, et cetera, for each individual citizen. But then also like you have just centralized all of these things that are, you know, pieces of, we're going to go with precious information um, that will absolutely be targets. Um, so how do you, how do we live at, at the intersection of those two truths? Um, And similarly, you know, like with other things, you know, we have to assume that uh, as we move toward more technology in healthcare, whether it's electronic record keeping um, that can be easily shared between, you know, non-associated practices. So for example, I see a primary care physician at this practice. I see an ENT at this practice. They are emailing each other my information. Like there are inevitable security issues at each parts of this. And well, in general, like it's absolutely in the best service of your health, like, yeah, there are, there are concerns mm. and understandably so. And isn't something, not to get off topic, but isn't something similarly happening uh, over at China? Aren't they having, isn't there a, they have social uh, scores, score. like social yeah. credit scores. Yeah. Yeah. So China is really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, really interesting, like as a data scientist, because basically the government in China uh, being as it is m- means that they can they don't really have to get consent from their populations to do anything. So while you know we don't really get to opt into having a FICO score in this country, like they don't really get to opt into having any kind of score or any kind of tracking. Um, so one of there are a few different things that are going on. One is um, the social credit score system, which is like basically based on your 
pay your ability to like pay people back and you know uh, and other things but also but also it gets a little nebulous in terms of what all goes into your credit score you will actually be denied the ability to like take the subway um, or access like the fast the mm. rapid bus you know the express bus or or whatever else in China so like there will actually be negative ramifications relatively soon uh, to having a negative social credit score which is I'm pretty sure an episode of Black Mirror. I know. Um, it is. It is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It is I actually saw episode that of Black episode. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy. Right. And yeah. so, like, that is a reality. It's not mm-hmm. quite Black Mirror bad, but it's not great. Um, another thing that's happening right now in China, we talked about last week a little bit, um, is really interesting. So, in I think 2,000 different preschools, elementary schools, they have kids basically say hello is what they would say but like say hello to a robot every morning and this robot takes their temperatures uh and like basically scans their face and does facial recognition to see if they have flushed cheeks or any other signs of like fever or illness um then it kicks the information to an adult who then says okay cool this kid is good to stay at school for the day or this kid needs to go home because they are potentially contagious and going to infect other kids with their cold, Mm -hmm. their flu, their, you know, whatever illness, Um, which on the one hand is like kind of awesome because they're, you know, this is a a way to prevent uh, illness from spreading, but also like we are taking data every day from children. We're tracking these kids over time and to what end with data security, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all sorts of breaches and it's scary, but also like, important you know yeah it's dangerous oh whenever i was in middle school i was just always faking so That's now like, you can't you can't, kids can't fake anymore. out anymore yeah, and like no. skip school so you're gonna be like nope you're i'm sorry your your face doesn't recognize your sick face mm-hmm. it, like it, yeah no your, your face doesn't match <laughs> your good. sick face as exactly. it normally is so yeah so we've talked a little bit about how technology can really in some ways enact episodes of black mirror into real life which is a little scary um I think from your perspective, since you since you follow data and trends so closely and work within, you know, diversity inclusion as an overall workspace environment, like, are there any examples that you might have of how technology can be used to create a more diverse and inclusive work environment? Yes. So there, there are a few ways that, uh, and a, a few different types of tech that are being used um, to attempt to create a more diverse, inclusive uh, environment to to try to increase the belonging in any organization. Um, whether it's apps that you can have on your phone that um, at the beginning of a meeting you'll punch in, okay, so you know, we've got two women in this meeting and we've got four men and then it'll track it'll track the voices speaking throughout the the meeting and then at the end it'll give you a readout and say okay so there was you know x amount of mansplaining basically mm-hmm. um <laughs> you know the women spoke much less than the men and and here's what happens or here's the breakdown um so there are apps like that which i mean that's data that's giving you feedback about something which is important and interesting mm-hmm. um but then it's still on the person to actually act on that figure out how to modify their behavior and change ultimately um, and then, you know, there are systems that allow you to, uh, that, that ensure more blind hiring practices. So, you know, it'll remove gendered language from resumes. It will, uh, you know, cha- like it will basically block names and potentially like the universities that somebody went to and, and all of the sorts of things that we make snap judgments about. 
um, when we may be you know, spending the 25 seconds that we spend to review a resume. Um, so there are things that, that are working on those sorts of, of issues, but all data is like, oh, not all data, like data is data, it's value neutral, but all things that we're building on data are reflective of that data. Data is history, history is also capturing the biases that we, we live in, around, and under. Um, so it doesn't take long for data to sometimes, and for the algorithms we're building using this data to sometimes exert those biases on top of things. So yes, there are absolutely tech solutions to, to certain elements of these problems, but I would also be super wary of anything that is saying that it will by itself mm -hmm. um, fix all of the things. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that there are like other certain kind of HR focused apps and programs like CultureAmp and a few others that I think focus more on uh, basically like community building and uh, office morale and uh, belonging in that regard. But we're still, I mean, probably for, for the best, a ways off from culture solving, or from not culture, but from technology solving our kind of culture and diversity issues, um, because those are truly human problems. Yeah, um, those it are things that we need to, to. Yeah, it comes down to people and like us needing to actually unpack our own biases. Right. Yeah, and you can't necessarily build an app that's going to solve that in one go. <laughs> I wish we could. I, we can't. It's we not. Can't. It's not a thing. Yeah. Like they're yeah. they're too codified. They're mm -hmm. too in there, and they're like things that we really have to discover and rediscover on an ongoing basis. Right. And like you said, data is is neutral. It's just yeah. what it is. It's just data. the data. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about bias in history. Uh, can, yeah. can you repeat that one more time? Yeah. So yeah. So um, basically, there's this idea that all data is history, right? Um, it's the imprint of something that's already happened. And our history is wildly biased. Uh, so any way that we're using that data, we can potentially be exacerbating our own biases. Um, it's why it's so dangerous to use uh, data to predict recidivism rates for incarcerated individuals. Um, because we know that we over-police certain populations, certain black and brown populations typically, definitely poor populations always, um, and we are more likely to, you know, mete out heavier penalties, um, and so, you know, the system stacks everything together, and then I can exclude race from the variable set that I'm using to predict out, you know, your possible recidivism or not, mm -hmm. but that doesn't matter if I know your zip code. Like there are so many variables that are proxies for things. And then also the history itself is biased. We're gonna over police the same people after they get out of jail um, as well. So we wind up exacerbating these issues and exacerbating our own biases if we're not actively interrogating what we're collecting. Um, yeah. So over at Patience and Purpose, uh, we, are working tirelessly to uh, bring in DNI practices into our agency. I'm actually one of the uh, shout out to the DNI uh, team. I'm actually one of the members on the DNI team, and uh, we just wanted to know uh, from your point of view, what does diversity and inclusion mean to you, and why is it so essential that an agency begins integrating DNI standards uh, into their work environment? 
Ooh, this is a it's a big question, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> yeah, loaded. It's I mean it's <laughs> yeah no it's not loaded so much. It's just it's a huge question, mm-hmm. right? So I I think a lot about I think a lot about mentorship. I think a lot about mentorship for a lot of reasons. One, because like I have long worked in a field where I am often the only woman. I am often the only queer person and I am very often the only person of color person of color period full stop Mm -hmm. but also definitely the only black person and you know and that's sometimes been in the the history of my career to date a little bit lonely and I and I don't say that to to say like millennial sadness and loneliness like I say that to mean you are a, a token in a million different ways. Um, and it can be hard to be that person on top of doing your actual job that you're paid to do. Um, and so I think about how much my career has depended on and been championed by and, and grown because of the down-ass mentors that I have had um, who have often been white dudes. Um, which has been awesome and and very, very, like I've been very fortunate in that space, but that has set the tone for how our teams have functioned, for ensuring that everybody is kind of moving toward not just an ally mindset, but like um, the mindset of uh, that you need to advocate for not just yourself, but for everybody else around you and that you need to speak truth when you are seeing uh, things meted out in ways that are unfair, when you are seeing misogyny in your workplace, when you're seeing racism in your workplace, like you, and and that it is empowering everyone, not just the HR team, not just the people on the DNI team, not just you know the person who is the minority or who is the marginalized person in any space. Um, and I've seen how important that has been, um, not just for my own experience, for, but for the experience of everyone on that team. Um, and then there's kind of the ripple effect of, of everybody around that team. And like it's, it changes an organization and it changes an organization for the better. Um, so, so understanding, I think, how inclusion and belonging works um, really just improves everything whether it's you know marketing messaging for a specific brand or how meetings and and brainstorms go or how how the room is like at 11 o'clock at night the day before pitch like it's important in all of these spaces which is why it's also kind of got to be part of the conversation all the time and not just part of the conversation like occasionally when we have to right Mm -hmm. that kind of leads into the the next part of that question which is if you if an organization really wants to foster a more diverse and inclusive workspace where where do they start is it just about understanding data and data biases and and having that kind of ability to reflect you know in your opinion what where where does somebody begin I mean, I think everybody should just read Black Feminists all the time. Um, <laughs> that is where you start. Yeah. No, um, real answer is not that, though I would highly recommend it always. Yes. Um, however, uh, I think that the answer is everybody's going to have a different way in. 
Um, for some people, it's going to be data, right? Uh, I just saw uh, something come across my desk earlier today about Uber. Um, Uber looked at their their workplace diversity numbers um, recently and decided that they are not where they want to be, um, where they have, uh, you know, sizable African-American and, and Latinx uh, employee numbers. They're almost all in support positions. Um, and there are very few of them in the tech part of the organization, which is honestly, and a lot of these tech companies, the prestige positions, right? And so at first blush, those numbers, those stats look pretty okay, but you dig into them and you realize like, well, we have pretty clear segregation on the teams, uh, and that's a problem. Um, we don't have folks getting promoted sometimes when they probably should be. Um, and interrogating that data, I think, is the way that some people are going to see that this is important. Some people are going to see that it's important or feel that it's important kind of when they start seeing a different way of being, when they start seeing a different way to kind of show up every day, um, when you start having people who are able to share what's going on in their lives, who are able to bring those perspectives, often important perspectives, to the table. Because there are a lot of assumptions that we make of each other. Um, and so some people will kind of see things and feel things and, and understand it that way. Some people are going to, you know, it's going to be the workshop that you do that's going to, like, change their minds. It's going to be the speaker that you have come in that's going to, like, to talk to them about something unrelated. Like, everybody's going to have a different way in. Um, I think that sometimes the data is the most actionable because it gives you it gives you a benchmark or an idea or a, some direction as to where you might need to go. Um, but data doesn't carry value by itself. It gives you information, and then you still have to figure out what's going on. And often, the quantitative data is not going to tell you what's going on. It's going to be qualitative data. It's going to be surveys. It's going to be talking to people. It's going to be exit interviews. It's, it's going to come from somewhere else. And when it comes to that, uh, the information that you get from data, uh, can you speak to us a little bit about what kind of data you're actually collecting in order to better understand DNI in our current zeitgeist? Man, um, so most of my day to day is not really DNI related okay. at all. Most of my day to day is just like <laughs> most of my day to day is like straight up cultural data. Like I can tell you how much of the news cycle Trump took up last week. That's like most of the data mm. that I that I capture. I capture data that is just broad and widespread about all of culture, and then I get to use that to, to answer a ton of different kinds of questions, right? Um, and then, you know, kind of because the off the side of my desk stuff is, is, occasionally, uh, is occasionally inclusion related, um, I always have kind of a, a basically some projects set up so that I'm collecting some additional data there or I'm segmenting a piece of, a piece of this whole pie so that I can just zoom into some of those conversations faster and I can figure out what's happening in those spaces faster. Um, and that's, that's really interesting because it gives a lot of perspective on, and, and basically one of the ways I get to do that is because like there are a couple of trends that get me a little bit closer to that sometimes, um, as well as like keywords that you can kind of set up and figure out. But um, yeah, so like I, I just kind of do this in, in the grand scheme of, of a lot of what I do. Um, because a lot of the, the data work is, is broader than that. But the thing is, like, 
a lot of communities of color, a lot of the places where these same kinds of conversation about like radical inclusion are happening, um, it's always the edges of and the most radical things that wind up finding their way to the more tepid middle within a couple of years. Um, and so I've been really lucky to, to spend like the last two and a half years in a place where like I'm able to find those kind of uh, like those niche conversations faster, whether it's through work that we're doing that's like looking at how radicalism operates, um, how radical ideas kind of perpetuate or it's work that we're doing on kind of shifting beauty standards or work that we're doing on, you know, other things. There's often a connection or a way in and it's it's part of every conversation, but it's also like specific conversations, if that makes sense. It's a real roundabout answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and when it comes to sort of like agencies and branding, uh, when provided with all of this, all these cultural insights and data, how can a brand best position itself to sort of take that into account and it's real tricky yeah. it's really tricky for bland, she brands doesn't to, have the to play i don't i mean i have some <laughs> suggestions usually but yeah. um it's really tricky for brands to figure out how to pull in and incorporate a lot a lot of things right in large part because you have to do so in a way that is like true to the brand and also that pulls people in that they feel comfortable with but shies away from becoming appropriative mm -hmm. or right. just which we've seen be a problem yeah oh yeah. i mean it's appropriation is it's a real problem yeah it's a real problem um and so that that that's one end of it and then also just like there's like the cultural missing a mark like you hired a translator like you you translated something from english to whatever else or from whatever else to english but you didn't hire a translator who is particularly good to do so you maybe just maybe you just google translated it um and it doesn't make any sense now um or you know there were ads a couple years ago that um in a couple of markets that I read some things about where um, they were using a lot of Spanglish, which is problematic in that the markets that they were doing this in, like, you don't read Spanglish. You maybe speak it a little bit, but for the most part, the, the people that they were trying to connect with either speak English or they speak Spanish, and they rarely use Spanglish, and so it came across as inauthentic. And so it's tricky is the answer, but I think that typically the brands that do it best are, are brands that find a way to subtly pull, pull people in or subtly um, message to, to, whom, um, to whom they want to while also not really caring a lot of times about the people who are gonna be upset by it. I mean, the work that Nike does, for example, is completely brilliant. I mean, Nike as a company has many other wildly problematic diversity inclusion issues, but their marketing and their branding and their advertising are wildly brilliant. Um, and the truth of the matter is they do that in a way that is just unapologetic. They do not care if you don't like what they are doing. This isn't for you. Um, and so that's an option as well. But it's, it's always tricky to kind of figure out what works for you. And a lot of it has to do with who you are as a brand. Like, are you a brand who's just going to say, like, this is this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and, like, we're doing so unapologetically? Or are you a brand who wants to play the more subtle game, wants to, you know, make sure that you're kind of aligning with culture that way, but not 
going so far as to uh, as to lose another part of your base. One hundred percent. It reminds me of. Um, I think they recently pulled uh, the Betsy Ross flag sneakers that yes. they released on July fourth because it's been like adopted by the alt right movement, and so they just completely pulled everything off the shelves. They actually didn't lose money from it. They actually ended up going up three percent in value uh, because of it, because of making the move. So it's about making the right moves uh, for your audience. Definitely right, um, and like that's a thing that Nike can do in part because they've been doing it for a while. Exactly. Um, so this is just like true to who they are. We're not surprised by it mm-hmm. really. And I mean, yes, there will always be a little bit of backlash, but that lives in, and dies in the news cycle much faster mm-hmm. than like other things where people maybe you know maybe act a little bit more out of character that that doesn't necessarily live and die as fast. I think one of the things that I'm interested in hearing from you about is is that you know a lot of work gets produced like we just talked about sometimes in vacuums sometimes um you know maybe there's an attempt at awareness or or authenticity and it might just miss the mark um but inherently you know people that are working on projects bring their own biases to things whether they're aware of it or not um but is there a way to ensure that work getting produced isn't baked in bias hmm isn't baked in bias. Also, baked in bias, I think, is like a brilliant way of stating that. Um, I mean, I think that to a certain extent, you have to figure out how to how to ensure that you're not bringing wild, wild, wild bias into an organization. And if it is there, you are figuring out how to mitigate harm as best as possible. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said of regularly asking yourself about casting do we have the right people who are working on this body of work? Um, do we have the kinds of voices that need to be heard attached to it? If no, are we at least seeking outside counsel or checking in with other folks who do know this space better? Because it, the hard thing there is your own ego, right? We love to become an expert in a thing. We don't always think about asking other people who maybe have experience with a thing about a thing, but we need to do it more frequently, Um, especially when it comes to uh, things where lived experiences are really helpful. Um, And so I think that some of it is that, right? Making sure that you have the right people there, making sure that you have the right people there and there and there and there and there, there. Um, because that's going to help tremendously. You also have to make sure that you are making space is safe for somebody to say something like uh and and also that you're you're making it safe for people to like explain sometimes why they know certain things like i know certain things because i was raised you know without a ton of without a ton of money i know certain things because i was like because i was raised xyz or like i know certain things because these are my friends these are my family members these are you know whatever else like we have a lot of lived experiences that we don't talk about sometimes and that can be like wildly helpful um so that's part of it and then and then also i mean i think that we need to regularly interrogate and encourage others to interrogate their biases this has been so amazing to talk to you you truly are an incredible and unique individual and we're just glad that you took the time out of your day do you have any uh any any uh (laughs) I don't know, social media pages I do. Uh, that you want to give a shout out so that Love people can um, continue following you. 
Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, you are welcome to follow me on the internets. Um, so basically, pretty much all of the handles are it's Clark with an E. So that's mm-hmm. I T S C L A R K with an E because my last name is Clark with an E on the end, and I have to say it all of the time. <laughs> so. My last name is Rogers with a D, so I'm always R O D. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I highly recommend buying the domain, um, so you you two can have. Can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, there you have it, folks. It's gonna be at it's Clark with an E, C L A R K E. Thank you so much, Kendra. Thanks, Kendra. Of course, thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed Kendra as much as we did. She was amazing. Yeah and has made it very clear that when you have more diverse and inclusive team, you create a better company. But it can't all be done at once. It really does take a lot of work, a lot of perspectives, a lot of healthy perspectives. Mm -hmm. A better hiring process, a more welcoming workplace, and being sure that you are always gut checking for bias. It truly makes all the difference. Exactly. And as always, thank you all for joining us. Thank you to Kendra Clark, and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.